How do you know that? I, like, I would, like I said, like, I, even though, like, it, it felt like I wasn't doing this physically, I was still able to see everything, and I would, like, see them moving, and, like, I just kept firing until, like, they stopped moving, and I would, like, aim at the head and whatnot. Welcome to Subhuman. I'm your host, Dead Rick. It's October 17th. Scott Kalaji's mom presented him with a gift, a board game, Clue. Clue pits three to six players against each other. Everyone becomes a detective. Some cocky-ass detective that thinks they know who done it. But they don't. Not in the beginning. The players are just there, slinging accusations at every Professor Plum and Colonel Mustard till something finally sticks. And that's exactly how you win Clue. Methodically accuse everyone. Check out their alibi. Rinse, repeat, and viola. You figure it out. I think that's pronounced voila. Voila. You figure it out. Well, the person that was paying attention figures it out because, well, they were paying attention and actually using the shit that comes with the game to figure it out. The notepads. He or she that takes the best notes wins. The winner will beam with delight as their unbeaten streak is stretching deep into the hundreds at this point. We all laugh. We accuse the winner of cheating because she always wins ever since she was 11 and you're secretly hoping she doesn't want to play again because she'll win again. And it's not fun anymore. Losing every time. I'm not bitter. Abby, I promise I did love playing with you. But damn, you won all the time. Where, where were we? At the end of the story, there'll be no question about the killer, the weapon, or the room. The rooms, I should say. Scott. The rifle. In the bedroom on the stairs, and in the kitchen. Let me continue. 16-year-old Scott called downstairs to his aunt and uncle. They lived in the basement apartment of, the, of uh, his Long Branch home, and uh, he wanted them to come play Clue with him. He began laying out the board, he was stacking the cards, and he was getting really excited. Scott acted his age in many ways. He wanted a girlfriend, he dreamt of college, he talked of joining the military, and in so many ways, he was a lot like other teens his age, 16. But in so many other facets of his life, he was nothing like his peers. He watched a lot of TV. His favorite show, SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm not sure who decided this was nothing like his peers. I think SpongeBob is for everyone. So, he still believed in Santa Claus. You know, I was 16 once. And I figured out pretty quick that there was no Santa. My dad was really drunk one night, and I was hoping for some present that was way too expensive, like a uh, ATV, a Yamaha Blaster, actually. He looked at me and said, Santa isn't real. Outwardly, I cried, I think. It was confirmation that there really is nothing left magical in the world. But inside, I already knew. You see, I'd been sneaking into the utility closet where my mom would hide the presents. Usually somewhere around middle of November, I think she started shopping. 
uh, when, when we had the money. Uh, she thought she was good. She was. She had all those gifts wrapped as soon as she brought them home. But I, too, was good. I'd cut that tape with surgical precision. I'd open the paper, cut the box seal. I'd put all the Legos together. I'd take them all apart. I'd rewrap the box like I wasn't even there. On Christmas, I'd act so surprised. She knew, though. She told me now as an adult, she knew. But like every mother who loves her son, she let me have that one. She also knew that when I would lock the uh, closet door behind myself after my Mission Impossible performance was complete, that I was stealing the change from the union dues that she collected from work. And I'd go across the street and buy a baby. But, uh, baby. I'd go across the street and buy a baby Ruth. I'd open it up and pretend it was a big turd. I'd throw it at my little sister. She'd cry. And then I'd eat it. Where am I going with this? A little while, it's going to make sense. She, my mom, she let me get away with it. She loved me. She still loves me, I think. Mom always let me win. Thanks, Mom. Let's get back to Scott, though. So Scott's 16. He watches SpongeBob on the regular. He believes in Santa. And the next thing really is a little bit different. He still slept in his parents' bed. With his parents. In between his parents. And maybe he is a little different than most 16-year-olds. So where were we? Clue. So Scott's got his aunt and uncle. Uh, they're up from the basement. He's setting out the board game. The cards, the board, the pieces. And then the pieces everybody loves. The miniature toy weapons. He pours them out on the board game that evening in October. The candlestick, the noose, the lead pipe. And then everyone's favorite piece, the revolver. Picks the revolver up. He holds it like a tiny gun between his thumb and his forefinger. And he points it right at his aunt Michelle. I'm going to kill you, he told Michelle. Scott whips the piece around. He bears down on his uncle with the tiny weapon. And kill you. After I come down from upstairs. After taking mom and dad out, Scott said to his uncle. Were his remarks a joke? A threat? A premonition? We'll see. Aunt Michelle's heard these words before, though. Over and over, quite frankly. Scott imagining and verbalizing the killing of his family. And it's been learned that killing his family was all he ever talked about. And he talked about it more and more as that fall marched on. And two months after that game of Clue, Scott Kalaji put his money where his mouth was. He walked the talk, they say. Upstairs in his brother's bedroom, Scott Kalaji stares down at that AK-47 rifle. On top of his brother's dresser, as he'd done so many times before. Completely fixated on that rifle. He'd sneak into his brother's room, run his fingers over the oiled wood stock, the cold steel of the receiver and along the barrel before he'd picked it up and rack it, over and over. He'd flip the safety back and forth, pull the trigger to hear it click. He was careful not to load it. He would play. He watched YouTube late into most nights, while manipulating every part of that rifle, as some uh, YouTube expert would walk him through the paces of loading, unloading, breaking it down, putting it together, firing, sighting, shooting. Scott didn't study much, but he got straight A's on this course. Scott's attention moves from the rifle to the phone in his pocket. He leans against the dresser and he starts a search. Terrorist attacks. His screen fills up like a plate at the all-you-can-eat buffet. Plenty of those to read about. And he lands on a juicy one from London. A van that drove into pedestrians on London Bridge. 
Three men jumped out of the van. They started stabbing a stabbing spree, killing four people, wounding 48. And it read, I quote, London terror attack. Police fire unprecedented number of rounds. Eight officers fired 50 shots at three attackers to ensure they were neutralized. Let's do some quick math here. Eight cops, 50 rounds, carry the one. It's like six and a quarter bullets each. Not bad. We do a little bigger around these parts. Not bad. Scott moves on from his interest of global tragedies and he searches the web one more time real quick. He types in the search bar, can a 7.62 millimeter bullet penetrate a bulletproof vest? You know, he's just curious. And he found out that they could. 762, 39 millimeter full metal jacket made famous by uh, the movie of said name, Full Metal Jacket. They'll go through most body armor, unless it's level 3A or 4, or it has a ballistic plate. But even if you were wearing such, such a, an article of clothing, an article of protection, that bullet's still going to jack you up, in case you were wondering. Meanwhile, his family was downstairs, celebrating the end of one year, the beginning of a new one. Everyone was there. His mother, Linda, his dad, Steve Sr., his grandfather, Adrian. Adrian's girlfriend, Mary Schultz, everyone called her grandma, his 18-year-old sister, Brittany, and his older brother, Stephen Jr. And finally, Stephen Jr.'s girlfriend, Raffaella. Everyone was laughing, smiling, remembering old times, reminiscing, looking forward to the new year, watching Anderson Cooper on TV, no doubt. They had no idea what or who was coming for them other than a new year and a hangover. Fifteen minutes before the ball dropped and fireworks lit up the sky over Long Branch, New Jersey. Scott was upstairs. He's putting his earplugs in. He learned that on the internet. He slid on a pair of dark gargoyle ANSI sunglasses and threw on a black leather jacket. He learned that from the Terminator. He had two magazines at the ready. He slid one into the bottom of the AK and put the other in his right front pocket. Scott knew that his mom, Linda, would come looking for him soon. Linda was a really cool mom. She loved the Foo Fighters, Pearl Jam, the New Jersey Lotto. In fact, her uh, her last post on Facebook, excuse me, her last post on Twitter, uh, she had just posted her Hall in New Jersey holiday magic lotto tickets. Uh, hoping to bring home a little extra cash that Christmas. Hashtag New Jersey holiday magic. But most of all, she was a fan of her boy, young Scott. Linda began walking the green mile up the stairs. She didn't want Scott to miss the ball drop. Scott turned off the lights to the bedroom. He didn't want to look into his mother's eyes, that place where he knew peace existed. And calm can take hold. He didn't want anything to stop him from this mission. Scott knew that if they met each other's gaze, he would surely stop. She opened the door to the bedroom. Linda was armed with a kazoo, a party hat, and a pair of oversized 2018 sunglasses. She didn't say a word. Linda was met with one shot to the chest and four more after she hit the floor. Scott was taken back, only for a moment. He didn't know how loud that rifle actually was. His research didn't quite prepare him for that. Scott's father, Stephen Sr., heard the first shot, along with everyone else in the house. And his first instinct was a party popper, maybe a firework. But fuck, that was loud. Then more shots rang out. Linda! 
He ran up the stairs from the living room. He kneeled down next to Linda at the landing, and Scott fired more rounds from the bedroom. Straight into his back. Stephen falls to the floor and down the stairs over his now dead and motionless wife. Steve Sr. is still moving. Scott points the rifle at his father's head, then to his mother, back to his father. He swears he can see them both still moving. Scott doesn't want them in pain. He doesn't really have a clue what he wants, but he can't stop now. Two more shots. Steven starts down the stairs, stepping over his dad's body toward the living room. Everyone downstairs is scrambling. Aunt Michelle and Uncle Richie ran into the basement, out the back door. They were safe. Michelle saw this coming for a while. She had already seen the clues. Back in October, she didn't need to process it when the first round sang its song of thunder. Scott's brother, Stephen Jr., he runs out the front door and up the street. He's safe. He knew immediately where the sound from above came from. It was his rifle. There are many like it, but this one, this one was live. Rafaela Bontempo, Stephen's girlfriend, sees her boyfriend head for the hills. She also sees bullet holes opening up in the ceiling and thinks just for a moment how beautiful it was. Like the lobby scene from The Matrix, Cement and concrete were just melting away in slow motion from a smattering of bullets hurling everywhere. But reality snaps back and she realizes the sound crushing her eardrums isn't party poppers and the holes aren't special effects. She runs to the kitchen where she tucks in beside the refrigerator, still wearing her party hat and her sunglasses, and she dials 911. She's safe. Scott reaches the bottom of the stairs calmly. He walks through the now empty living room wondering, where'd everybody go? He reaches the kitchen. He sees his sister, Brittany. Brittany just come home from the holidays from a nearby, but not nearby enough to live at home, Stockton University. Without any hesitation, he raises the rifle, sets its path squarely into her face and pulls the trigger. And then two in the chest, for good measure. We're almost there, that's three down. Mary. Mary was next. Mary was the 70-year-old girlfriend of Scott's grandpa, Adrian. Mary had been with the family so long, they called her grandma. So Scott shot her four times. Scott then sights in on his grandfather, Adrian. Seeing Mary's eyes go dark as her life had been taken away, Adrian fell to his knees and pulled Mary into his arms and cradled her screaming. Why? And then he looked at Raffaella and he yelled for help. But everything was silent. The pain in Adrian's eyes was overwhelming, the anguish in his face visceral and fraught with emotion. When Scott saw it, he just stopped. I had the gun pointed, and then, like, I snapped back to reality. That's what he told detectives in an interview about two hours after the killing. After suffering off and on from hallucinations, since he was a child, Scott Kalaji at 16 had spent the past year thinking about doing something to hurt his family. That's what he told detectives New Year's Day 2018. He told them he put 30 bullets in each of the two magazines so he could continue shooting until he ran out of bullets. He said he even thought about continuing the spree outside the house and going to shoot a neighbor that bullied him growing up. But when he saw his grandfather, Adrian Kalaji, fall to his knees and get emotional upon seeing his life partner shot, Scott said he snapped back to reality and spared his grandfather's life. 
Scott's brother Steve returns to the house and breaks the silence. Steven Jr. said, Scott, what are you doing? And Scott replied, I'm calling the cops. Steve Jr. shook his head, grabbed the rifle from Scott, and went upstairs to put the gun away so police wouldn't shoot him when they came for him. Two hours later, the confession. Scott's being interviewed by two detectives, Monmouth County Detective Andrea Tazi and Long Branch Detective Michael Verdadario. They videotaped that interview with Scott within hours of the shooting deaths. It was mom, Linda, his father, Stephen, his sister, Brittany, his grandfather's girlfriend, Mary, all at the Kalaji family's home at 635 Wall Street. So you're aiming at their heads? Yeah, and when I saw they were still moving, because, like, even though I was, like, in this, like, type of thing, like, I just didn't want them to be in pain at the same time. All right, let's, so let me rewind a little bit. So upstairs, your mom walks in, right? Opens the door. Opens she didn't walk in yet. So the gun was loaded already? Yes. How many times did you shoot her? I would say five, seven times. Where do you shoot her at? What part of the body? And then, like, the torso and chest. All right, and then your father hears the shots, and he comes up? Yes, and then he it was his back. Uh, his back? Yeah. All right, and then you walk down the steps Yeah. with a gun loaded, and you go yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah, and... Then the rest. Uh, How many times did you shoot your sister? Three times. Where did you shoot her at? Um, well, she was sitting down, so it was like kind of like chest and everything. And who's the uh, other person you shot? Got a grandmother. Mary. Yeah, chest region. Chest region. Yeah. How many times did you shoot her? You were four times, I believe. Four times. Like, and I know, like, because uh, I had the things in my ears, it was muffled, but, like, it was also because I wasn't there fully. When you were loading the mags and when you were doing this, there yeah, was... Yeah, I was, like, questioning it, but I just, like, couldn't stop. Like, it was, like, something subconsciously, like, I had to do it. Did you feel anger? At certain moments, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just. <coughs> Um, you said something before, and I, I want to make sure I what? remember it correctly to ask you about it. Um, you said uh, something about um, you weren't really mentally there. Something no, like it, when everything was going down, like okay. everything was happening, like it felt like I was watching it. Like it felt like I was like further back okay. in my mind. Like I felt like I could still see it, uh -huh. and I knew I was doing it. It just uh -huh. felt like it wasn't me. Yeah. But yet you knew what you were doing. Yeah. You know what time this happened at, right? You remember the time? It was around tw 12, because it was like... It was, a, it was before right, the yeah, actual right, New Year, right? Drop. So it was around, what, 11, 30, 12, around there? I would say 11, 58, 59. Did you do that on purpose? What? I was thinking, like, around that time. Like Happy New Year? Yeah, yeah, of? yeah. What time did you think of doing this at? Um, did you... How long have you been I don't this? know. I, like, but mainly a day. Like I just saw like. Like was it? Were you thinking about it all day today? Yeah, pretty much. So you were, you were thinking about going to get your brother's gun and shooting everybody up? Yeah. Stephen Jr., 20 years old at the time, stayed present with Scott during the police interview. He was acting as his guardian, and during that interview that you just heard, Steve Jr.'s face is twisted with emotion. As Scott so flatly gives the details of his actions as he shot each one of his family members. During other parts of the police interview, Scott described himself as being emotionally detached. 
He said he thought on and off for the past year about hurting his family. Sometimes I would have mood swings. Happy one minute, then really, like, upset, he told detectives. So Detective Tazi asked him if that's how he felt that night. Scott replies, I don't know how I felt. I was all over the place. When everything was happening, it felt like I was just watching it, like I was further back in my mind. I could still see it, but it, it felt like it wasn't me. And even though I felt like I wasn't doing this physically, I was able to see everything, like them moving and the firing, and, and then they stopped moving. He told them they aimed at the victim's head when he saw that they were still moving because despite what he was doing to them, he didn't want them to be in pain at the same time. He was like, quote, what am I doing? I don't even know how to use this gun. I don't even know how to load it. I don't even know how the recoil would be, unquote. He told the detective his mother and father never saw the gun because he turned off the lights. I just didn't want her to look at me. I think that would have snapped me out of it. I'm not there in the head. Scott had a flat affect. He lacked emotion. And his Aunt Michelle said he lacked empathy. When people in his family he loved died, he would respond with a shrug and say, it happens. Scott went on to describe hallucinations to the detective, said they started when he was like seven. He used to hear teachers and, and classmates' voices even when he was alone in the house. And sometimes, he said sometimes, he would see the face of a woman who sat on his bed and she would turn from red to black. Stephen was a bit behind his peers. And by a bit, I mean a lot. He'd caught up to them academically. He, he made grades, C's and D's, but his social skills and reasoning remained way underdeveloped. And that left him so gullible that the kids would make fun of him and they'd bully him. They were mean. His mom would take care of him, I guess. He did need help with certain things, I guess, but he, he was always coherent. Like he was talking, understanding what we were saying. He didn't even go to like public school or Long Branch. I know he went to like, I don't know if he got homeschooled or a special school or something. Lynn and Steve Sr. homeschooled Scott in the seventh grade, and they enrolled him at the Hawkswood School for Children with Disabilities and Autism in uh, Eatontown. And by 16, he was seeing a school therapist regularly. But the court or any other known medical records uh, never indicated any other treatment. The extended family on Scott's father's side did have a history of, or does, excuse me, they do have a uh, history of mental illness. Uh, medical records list schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, bipolar disorder, and autism. And although some family members described him as having autism spectrum disorder at the time of the killings, Scott's only official diagnosis as a child was ADHD. Medical records show no other treatment beyond Scott being a toddler. And maybe no one really has a clue about the specifics of Scott's mental state. His lawyer argues that he has schizophrenia. The prosecution, they argue that he has autism, spectrum disorder, and OCD. By the time he grew to become a six-foot-tall teenager with brown eyes, close-cropped hair, really thick eyebrows, Scott would have mood swings. He'd be very happy, almost euphoric, and then the next minute, extremely upset for no reasons, for no reasons that made sense to anybody but him. And sometimes you just burst into laughter. Other times he was described as being lost in a daydream, sometimes for as long as an hour, the dream only ending when someone would actually physically shake him back. The family 
the living family. Uh, they describe instances around 2017 or so as the time that violent thoughts started to make themselves known. It would be so easy to choke you. Scott Kalaji placed his hand around Raphael Bontempo's neck as he said it. Scott had never been threatening before that moment, and even in this moment, his words weren't singed with malice. They were flat. Not scary, but weird. Raphael was Stephen Jr.'s girlfriend, and she said you couldn't tell. You could tell he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know that he was doing something wrong. Scott told police in the interview that he had a lot of other thoughts and urges, and he didn't want to think about hurting his family, but he couldn't stop his mind from manifesting the thoughts. It's not that I have a personal vendetta against anyone, but I just do random stuff. Uh, pop, it would pop up in my head, and sometimes it would be more frequent than others, and other times it, I'd be fine for a while. I'm not right in the head. The forensic psychologist who interviewed Scott, Park Dietz, he described how Scott would fixate on memories of bad moments. And one of those moments was the time that Stephen Jr. yelled at him for eating the last piece of cornbread on Thanksgiving. So Dr. Dietz asked him if the cornbread incident was simply just normal behavior among his brothers. But Scott insisted it was a really big deal. At some point in 2017, Scott told his mom about his troubling ideas, his thoughts. But he kept them vague, describing them as strange or violent. And they would just come out of nowhere. Sometimes, he later said, they came after remembering those bad moments. That summer and fall in 2017, he started to confide in his grandfather, Adrian. Adrian and Kalaji was, in some ways, Scott's closest friend. The only one that seemed affectionate towards him and uh, the only one that Scott seemed affectionate towards. Scott would be at grandpa's house almost every day, helping him out because he didn't like to see his grandpa struggle with a walker. Scott told Dr. Dietz, that he started confiding in his grandfather, who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic earlier in his life, according to the court records, about the hallucinations and his thoughts about hurting people and hurting his family. His grandfather told Scott to try to focus on other things, and he did try, Scott said. He would listen to music, he'd read, he'd take a shower, he'd turn on SpongeBob. But sometimes it was just a nagging thought, sometimes it was an urge. I thought about pulling a knife on my grandma, he told police. Uh, Scott's feelings were so strong that he started to carry a steak knife around the house. Scott said his grandpa told him that the government was listening to his phone calls and that Mary was stealing his money. But Scott knew that she never did, uh, even though his grandpa claims that, that that's what she was doing and the government was on to him. But after Scott heard that, he couldn't stop thinking that he just had to hurt her. Scott also told the psychiatrist that his grandfather gave him a pill several times in the fall of 2017 that he hoped would make Scott feel better. But instead, Scott said it had the opposite effect. It aggravated the thoughts that were coming into my head. It was, it really made me very paranoid, he says in the interview. He continues, I'm just staring off and like all these thoughts are coming in on me. It doesn't matter. People are out to hurt me and kill me. People are plotting on me. Like I have to protect myself or I have to do something. Several members of the Kalaji family knew Scott thought about hurting loved ones. But his mom and his grandfather encouraged keeping silent. With my mom, I would say, I'm having some weird thoughts. Should I talk to you or anyone? And she'd be like, oh no, don't tell anyone. Just keep it to yourself. And that's how it was in our family. 
Zan Michelle had been holding back during questioning by the police that night, the night of the murders. At the time, she didn't know that her sister Linda had been killed. She didn't want Linda to be mad at her for what she was about to say. The veil of secrecy concerning Scott's change of behavior went so far that Linda threatened to kick Michelle and her husband Richie out of the house if she told anyone about the things Scott had been saying. That's what she told the detectives. Every Friday, Aunt Michelle would take Scott to school, and she told detectives that she heard Scott talk about homicidal thoughts on every one of those rides. In the car during those conversations, Aunt Michelle would ask Scott if he would allow her and her husband to live, to which her nephew replied, No, of course I would take you out, but I'd let Richie go home to his family. And at the house, Michelle would hear Scott and his mom talking, and one of those conversations went something like this. Linda said, you wouldn't hurt me. And Scott said, I'd have to. And then dad would be second because he'd be sad without you being there. Linda would then ask Scott about Brittany. And Scott said that he hated Brittany. Scott said he would have to kill his brother Steve Jr. too because he'd be alone without his parents. Then Scott outright told his mother that he might have to hurt her, according to Anne Michelle. He begged his mother to let him talk to a therapist about his bad thoughts, but she said no because she didn't want him taken away from her. When Scott first reached out for help, he was 15. He still slept in his parents' bed, just like he'd done his whole life. His mom was devoted to him and did her best to love him to health. On Thursday, June 20th, 2022, at 3 p.m., after a jury deliberation lasting five and a half hours, Scott Kalaji was found guilty of four first-degree murders and sentenced to 150 years. The defense argued during the trial that Scott told family members he was having uncontrollable thoughts about hurting them in the months leading up to the killings, that he begged his family for help, but his pleas were ignored. The defense attorneys argued that Kalaji's mental illness got progressively worse to the point where he was taken over by a psychotic episode when the killings occurred. The Monmouth County prosecutors argued that Kalaji knew exactly what he was doing and knew it was wrong when he loaded each of the 30 bullets into the magazines for the assault rifle and then pulled that rifle's trigger 14 times while aiming at family members, 12 of those hitting the mark. Monmouth County Supreme Court Judge Mark Lemieux said that the murders caused immeasurable harm and that it was the intention of the court to never again allow Scott Kalaji to see the light of day. And that it was a tragedy that nobody saw this coming, despite all the clues. And that'll do it. Till next time. If there is a next time. If you need help, or if someone you know needs help, dial 988. Or call 1-800-273-8255. Yeah, it's the suicide prevention line, but they're involving. It's now the crisis hotline. Someone will be there. Someone will talk to you.